0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content. So if you've deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. If Parshat Balotcha transitioned us into the complaints and degradation of the people's spirit in the wilderness period, I often think of Parshat Chukat as part of their slow climb upward. We have moved to the end of the wilderness period after the passing of 38 years. The Parsha opens with the enigmatic ritual of the Red Heifer, the Paraduma, and continues with the subtle interweaving of the loss of leaders along with small gestures of the people's maturation. Miriam and Aaron pass away after it is declared that both Aaron and Moshe will not be able to enter the land of Israel, in the famous story of me which we spoke about in last year's episode, uh, 63. The people are preparing, knowingly or unknowingly, for life without their first generation of leaders. And while important people often think they are irreplaceable, we have initial inklings that the people are capable of functioning without their monumental leaders. First, they pray for the release of a, of a captive, and God Hears their prayers. They fight a war against Sichon, the king of Emory, and are successful. Interspersed between these triumphs are complaints and the mysterious miracle of the serpent's staff that saves the people from their punishment. It is a real teenage moment, highs and lows deeply intertwined, but the highs slipped in there remind us that the potential is great, and that when left without their leaders, the people will remain on their own two feet, partially in thanks to their wilderness boot camp experience. Today, I sit down again with friend, Chavruta, and returning podcast guest, Ravneet Rachel Weber Lesha. Rachel teaches Talmud and Jewish law at Midrash at Lindebaum, and functions as the Yuvat Halacha. Rachel, it's great to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me back, Yosefa.
0: So the reason I invited you, not only because uh, I love talking to you on a regular basis, and thankfully we get to do that, is because this parsha really deals a tremendous amount with, with loss and with death. And this whole past year this is a topic that you and I from a very particular angle of the halachic angle have been learning together. We learned Hilchot Abilu together this year, a project we thought would take us a very short amount of time, and it turns out <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to take us a very short amount of time no. in the framework of time we have to devote to the Chavruta. So I, I thought about you when, when it came to this topic because it's one that we've sort of been we've been thinking and, and coffeeing over and learning over for for the past few months. So I'm happy to have you here. And I wanted us to start our conversation with the opening of the parsha, which is the which is the parah aduma ritual itself. The details, I think, are known to many of us. It's an unusual situation. He who prepares the parah aduma uh, tincture will himself become impure the function of the of the paraduma is essentially be part of a water a water tincture that will purify those who have become impure by coming in contact with uh, with dead bodies and it's a curious thing to open the parsha with because again we have this interweaving of law and narrative that we've spoken about in past episodes but it seems at least at first glance disconnected from the other elements of the parsha
1: Right. In some ways, this feels like a flashback to Vayikra, where we might have expected um, something that's ritual. One thing I realized as you were saying your introduction, though, one thing that makes this parsha very different is that the main character um, is Elazar HaKohen, who is a second generation Cohen. Aaron HaKohen, his father, is still alive, but Elazar is the one tasked with being the first high priest to run the Para'aduma ceremony. So we're already getting a a hint that this is somehow like a second generation transitory process. Um, and it's teaching the Jewish people a very, very profound idea about death and loss, which is that death is always going to be a part of the human story. And as we recover from encounters with death, Humans need a process of coming back in contact with the divine, and it's not a process that they can do on their own. They need someone else. They need a partner in that process, and here Elazar Hakohen stands as that person, that representative of the divine.
0: Yeah, well, that that transition becomes overtly clear at the end of the parsha when Aaron dies, and there's a, a real. Ritual of switching of clothing and the, the, the task moving over Telazar becomes very, very clear. But it's true that he appears in this, uh, in this part of the Parsha as well, and it feels very much like a preparation for his job. So you're saying it sort of connects the leadership concept and the ritual that we have at the beginning of the Parsha, which would seem not connected to the theme, but you're saying it itself is connected to this idea of passing over to the next generation.
1: I sometimes wish that I had the chance to read the Torah, for the first time as an adult, not knowing what was going to happen. Because if I were to read this Parsha, not knowing that God is going to tell Moshe and Aaron that they are not going to be able to go into the land of Israel, I would be surprised when I see Elazar's name show up here. Knowing the end of the story, I'm not surprised that he's already being prepared to, to take over. But I think, in a little in a little way, this story is kind of hinting to us at what's to come, and also referencing a huge gap from a literary perspective. Bamidbar is very strange because there's a lot of stories about the first year in the desert or two years, depending how you mark the time, and then we skip 38 years, and this halachic text, in some ways, fills in that gap of the 38 years from the sin of the spies until the Jews really begin re. Rebegin their journey towards the land
0: of Israel. How does it fill in that gap?
1: So one way of looking at it, and, and there are midrashim that reflect on this, is that there, according to many, God didn't speak to Moshe Rabbeinu in these thirty-eight years, which meant that these thirty-eight years were years of disconnection from the divine. And 38 years of death, 38 years of waiting for the Jews who left Egypt um, to die out so that their children could go and inherit the land. And in some ways, these 38 years really were this period of stagnation, a period of freezing, a period without forward motion from both a religious and a physical perspective And this ritual of the paraduma, though it's a personal ritual for individuals who've encountered death, I think it's also a way of saying, okay, time to move on. We've had 38 years and now let's see what comes next.
0: You know, it's interesting. There are several explanations offered for what is the function of the ritual, right? Which is speaking exactly to your point. Now, it's really... It's not a kapara. It's not meant to be an atonement. And there are, while some of the commentators do speak about it as a kapara, there are several elements of it that really that really point to it not being that. First of all, it's really meant to it's meant to purify, uh, and. And to enable somebody to continue on to be part of the eidah to come back and be part of the congregation, we have the interesting connection with the mitzvah with the with the leper because we have the use of the hisab the izov, uh, and and we also have a part of it which feels a little bit like an olah because it's completely burned, uh, and so it's it's like a combination of several different kinds of of korbanot. But what does it mean that it? purifies. It's not just a status changer, but it also uh, it also reflects upon different values. First of all, in the ancient world, people really worshiped the dead. And so having this kind of ritual is one of the first most fundamental ways that the Torah says we want to separate ourselves from those who are dead. We don't, definitely don't worship them, and we also don't want to be intertwined with them. So speaking about, you know, waiting for the next generation to sort of rise up and be able to enter Israel, there's also a certain uh, a certain desire in the part of the Torah to, to move away from that which was. I mean, we need to leave this behind us uh, as opposed to bringing it with us in our pockets and, you know, worshiping it or having it be part of our, of our, of our daily story. Rev Hirsch actually interestingly says that this process is here to make sure that people don't sort of get depressed by all of their loss to sort of, again, to separate them, but so that their, their mood or their ability to move forward and be functional is not, is not impacted.
1: It's also a process which requires coming to the Mikdash. Right? Somebody who encounters loss may be tempted to remain at home, remain separate, feel that they can't rejoin society. Um, and this process, while it certainly doesn't need to be done immediately, immediately after a loss, um, it needs to be done in time for a person to come back to holiness, whether that's, let's say, before bringing the Korban Pesach. We know that this process, um, we actually read about um, the Paraduma parshat para before Pesach because there were mass sprinklings so that people could bring the Korban Pesach, a moment that requires everybody to join the people in you know a, a uniform coming close um, to holiness. And I think that on the one hand, it doesn't have a specific time required. On the other hand, it says, okay, it's time to come out. It's time to be with people. And we're going to give you some kind of procedure to make that transition a little bit, a little bit easier for you. We had talked about how this is a little bit reminds us of the minhag, the custom that some have um, when getting up from Shiva to walk around the block. I looked into it a bit. It turns out that there are no traditional rabbinic sources for this custom. It seems to actually be an American Jewish
0: custom. Oh, really? Custom? I didn't know it was yes. Geographical. Um,
1: well, a, a teacher told me, Rabbi David Brovsky, actually, who wrote a book on um, morning customs, told me that it's first recorded in Rabbi Maurice Lamb's book on. Um, Jewish death and mourning, um, and it doesn't seem to appear in written literature before American Jewry. Someone else pointed out to me that in Israel, the custom is to immediately go to the cemetery after Shiva, Mm -hmm. um, which is less common in other locations. I don't want to get bogged down in the halachic details, but it's actually fascinating that there is an instinct to encourage mourners to stay inside for a certain period of time and then to come out and ritually rejoin community. And in some ways, the Paraduma ritual reminds me of that.
0: Yeah, I think we'd also mentioned that it reminds us a little bit of the process that the woman who gives birth also has to go through, right? That she has to bring this korban, this sacrifice at a certain point. And it's also a way of saying, you've been home, you've been recuperating, you've been in your own space, and at a certain point, it's time to, to come and join come and join the outside world as someone who just did this with, without the sacrifice, <laughs> still doing it. He's only five weeks old. But um, but it's interesting because just this past Shabbat, I went to I went to shul. My husband actually made a seum in the morning. And then I was like, I'm already out of my house at day 30. So I'm going to go back to shul. And it was like the fourth Shabbat, right? Uh, post-giving birth. And I like, sat down there and I, I really felt that moment to myself of like, I've rejoined, and I feel well enough to rejoin. You know, in the previous Shabbat, it was like a non-issue. I was not joining anybody, so I really, I really identify uh, at this current moment also with that transition.
1: So, in some ways, I think the Paraduma ritual reflects back on the stories that came before it, on the aftermath of the sin of the spies. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, it also foreshadows the more specific personal deaths that we encounter later on in Parshat Chukat, um, that of 2 thirds of the leadership team of Moshe and Aaron um, before the death of Moshe later. Yeah, there's
0: tremendous loss that that happens in in this week's Parsha. It sort of comes at a big boom. I think there's also a tremendous difference between the ways that these deaths are both described and also the way that they're responded to. So.
1: Right. Immediately after the death of Miriam, the people are faced with a, um, a lack of water, a problem that we haven't seen since immediately after the exodus in Parshat Shmot. There was really a period of successful desert living. If on the one hand, I had said 38 years of death, we also had 38 years of Food falling from the sky, water seeming to be miraculously available. We didn't hear about any of these sort of prosaic, life giving um, issues so much. And now Miriam is gone, the water is missing, and there's a breakdown in the leadership and communication between God, Moshe, and the Jewish people. There's obviously we can't spend our time going into all the potential interpretations of what goes on with Moshe, the rock hitting God, etc. Mm-hmm. But something has gone fundamentally wrong here, and the the connection to the loss of Miriam um, seems to
0: amplify how tenuous this moment is for the people. So I want to I want to spend a minute on, on that because it also harkens back to a conversation we had had in Parshat Balatcha. But the question of juxtaposition here is a is a an ancient one that Rashi brings up. And that's, we have the Midrash that Rashi brings that it's because of Miriam that we had the well. And so when she passes away, we no longer have a well. So I don't want to focus on that interpretation, but I do want to think for a moment about the juxtaposition between not the loss of water, but the way that Moshe responds to the loss of water. Because in, in Parshat Balotcha, Dr. El-Ziegler has suggested that it is perhaps the parting with Yitro that made Moshe lose his cool essentially. Meaning when Yitro leaves Am Yisrael, Moshe feels very, very alone. And it leads to his breakdown when he says, I can't hold these people by myself. And right on and, and the female imagery uh, of uh Lo Y And and I I feel that again, if we could read into the juxtaposition here, that we have a similar we have a similar movement happening. When Miriam dies Miriam is Moshe's he, she is his female leadership right that she not only in sort of the the three-way leadership class we have between him Aaron and, and and Miriam but she saved Moshe right this is this is primal and when i read about his response to the people which is again as you said sort of famously hitting and not speaking I go back and think, this is an interesting repeat of the second chapter of Shmot, where Moshe uses his hands in a way that gets him into trouble, when he should have theoretically been using his mouth. And it's hard for me not to read it into the fact that, you know, Miriam dies, and Moshe sort of goes right back into that sort of initial primal role of his.
1: It's also one of those places where people are tempted to say, oh, that midrash about Miriam and the water, like, where does that even come from? But of course, as you said, when we hear Miriam, we think back to the beginning of Sefer Shemot and the role, the the relationship between Miriam and water and Mm -hmm. water that saves people, right? And Miriam waiting for Moshe to see what's going to happen. And the fact that Miriam was Moshe's protector at that most vulnerable moment at the beginning of his life, we can imagine. Imagine maybe him going back to a certain amount of vulnerability here also, you know, not to not to psychoanalyze biblical characters more than is appropriate, but certainly she's been with him literally from the very beginning at every stage. She's watched him. We assume she's helped him grow and now there's a water crisis um, and, and it turns into
0: a bigger crisis. I think we see then than was absolutely necessary. What's interesting also is that now that I think about it in this conversation, when Aaron dies, we'll talk about in a moment what we do have there, but we don't have Moshe breaking down after that. And I think that part of that is because Aaron has a replacement. Aaron is not only a man, he's an institution. And the institution has a very clear way of it being continue- continued. If I go back to the comparison between Yitro sort of moving away from Moshe and Miriam, these are two critical figures in his life. Who will not have any replacement? There is no one who will take their place. They also don't symbolize an institution. So Miriam dies. There's no fanfare. There's also no response on the part of the people. Which I'll just say. I hope this isn't too offensive, but it's very clear to me. Also, that it's part of the fact because she's a woman. Meaning, I think that there's there isn't that like clear mourning ritual for her. It could be because she also didn't have the same national function that that uh, that Aaron and certainly, obviously, Moshe will have, but she doesn't have any, any replacement. And so the emotional, again, I'm reading into it, but the emotional response, I think that we see in the response to the water complaint after she dies to me really bespeaks that point of sort of just feeling bereft and, and, and trying to figure out what what to do in this moment. And Moshe loses it a little bit.
1: This also marks exactly the transition when we go, I think, from Personal loss for Moshe to national loss for the people, and we seem to do better with the national loss, right? When we transition to the death of Aaron, and as you said, there is a proper mourning period, and there's also a proper handoff. It becomes clear to everybody um, that Elazar is stepping into his father's role. Elazar has been training for this, and the clothing of Aaron are literally dressed upon. That's not English. That would work better in Hebrew. Aaron dresses his son in his own priestly garments, um, and the people are better prepared. Now, that's not to say crisis doesn't follow, because a war does follow. Mm -hmm. But um, once we lose Miriam, that's the last person in Moshe's life who is only connected to him personally. From here on out, everything is national. We'll have the death of Aaron, and then later on, of course, the death of Moshe. But before the death of Moshe, we'll bring in Yoshua, meaning now the people are much more prepared to figure out what a transition looks like. One could even suggest that the failure after the death of Miriam might be, in some ways, inspiring of these behaviors, right? You suggested she didn't have a mourning period maybe because she wasn't an official institution or because she was a woman we could also suggest that realizing what happened after the death of Miriam made the people realize when our own goes we got to we got to respond to this differently we have to give ourselves space and time to mourn and
0: transition in that whole episode of of Memory Va uh, i honestly i didn't remember the the commentary of the i think it's see barbanelle who says, you know, we're not going to go into all the details of all the many different explanations we have for what really went wrong there, because it obviously, you know, the crime doesn't seem to fit the punishment, or the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. But uh, but Abar Benel reading into also how Moshe speaks about this episode later in Sefer Dvarim says that it, this is this was sort of a cover, meaning Moshe wasn't going to continue leading the people because he wasn't the right leader to continue leading them. He was right for this time period, and he wasn't going to be the one who was right to lead them in Israel. But sort of this episode is used as I wouldn't say an excuse but it's used as what we'd say in Hebrew an ilah. like it's sort of the the reasoning on which will hang the fact that that you're no longer the right person to to do the job and, and when we, we sort of feel that in this parsha, we have this complete separation from this whole leadership generation. Two of them actually die. One of them we know will eventually have to prepare to die. And when we read about the, the death of Aaron, there's something really kind of exquisite about it. And if we open the parsha with this ritual of how the people themselves will enable will be able to separate from death of experience. Perhaps, as we said, not to become too depressed, or the Midrash says it in different words, they shouldn't be too sad, right? So we have to give them ways to sort of be uh, separate from from the world uh, of death. We see sort of an exquisite engagement with it at the end of the Parsha. We see full preparation. We see connection between generations. And, and we see what seems to be complete peace right if moshe is declaring you know god i don't want this i don't want this uh this punishment as he says later in parshat Chanan so here aaron seems to very much accept the the fate that his that has been put upon him and so there's something i think very um, symmetrical about, about the parsha. The first is really focused on the people and the end is really more focused on on our himself, but it's but also a really moving treatment of death that shows us how it could be done better.
1: And when we think about what that message is, what is that sort of ideal death if one could if one could speak like that, I'm reminded of, in my mind, one of the saddest rashis on the Torah when God tells Moshe take Aaron, your brother. And Rashi always understands that the word kach, take, um, implies something deeper. And Rashi says, what words did Moshe use to take Aaron, his brother, to his final death? Moshe said to Aaron, you are lucky that you will be able to witness the transition of your role to your son. I myself will never be so lucky. My sons are not stepping into my role. Now this it's, it's tragic for Moshe when we think about sort of Moshe's disconnection from his biological children and the way that they are really written out of the story. Um, but to focus on the positive, what we see is this idea that if you can reach a point where you can look at your children after you and feel that they are continuing in your path, that is maybe the most comforting thing that a person can see at the end of their lifetime. Um, and of the three leading siblings, um, we know that at least our own got that. And not just that he saw one son step into his role, but he also had a nation of children mourn him in a very very appropriate way a way that fits into this idea of Aaron as ohev shalom v'rodif shalom a person who really connected with human beings and i think that this is um, a unique tribute to Aaron how appropriate it was that he really did get to see that success both immediately before and in some ways immediately after his
0: passing and I guess to continue the feeling, I don't know if it's tragic, but it's it's definitely a sad feeling that in this parsha, while Moshe will be given his due in Sefer Dvarim and he'll have lots to say, and he'll be given the most, the greatest accolades that God can ever award to any, any of his any of his leaders and servants as an Eved Hashem, and and as we saw previously, a Nav Adam, in the. Almost at the end of the parsha, it says, yisrael, hazot." That we have this this very enigmatic song of of the Be'er, and immediately we remember that as Moshe, right? That we had a previous time when Moshe was the singer. And here, it's not him, right? Am Yisrael are able to create to create their own song. And so, not only do we not have Moshe being able to sort of pass over his role to his children, but we're also again being seen that he's he's taught them enough and they're able to to function without him, even though he's still going to be with us for another book, right? But but that we already see here the inklings of their ability to function when he too will pass.
1: Right. That's the upside that while it won't be his biological children, Moshe has been preparing Yehoshua for this day. He's been preparing the people for this day. Already in, in Parsha Baalotra, he says, Halavai, that all of my children should be should be prophets and Nevi'im. Moshe's not competitive or jealous about his leadership role. He is aware that, you know, there are things that need to be shared. Um, But it is true, though, that he doesn't seem to have known or wasn't totally aware that he wasn't going to take the next step with them. Although you imagine it's getting lonely to be Moshe. There's nobody his age left. By the end of this Parsha, he is the oldest person the Jewish people, as far as we know, as far as we have any reason to believe, and you can understand how he looks around and has to hope that his people are ready.
0: From here on in, in the parshiot that are coming, what we really see is is mass organization uh, to be able to move forward to deal with their military role. We, we're trying. We're speaking a lot about sort of spiritual preparations or even emotional preparation. But the fact is is that they're galvanizing an army at this point and they are fighting they're already fighting wars, which again we also haven't heard about for many, many years. so they had a big break from that from the earlier few episodes and in this week's partial they have several of them. Um, but the next few partial really deal with with a lot of those those military elements and also that they physically are going to travel. They're going to travel to many many places before they're going to be making their sort of final step where they'll be hearing from Boshev or his sort of his last speech and then and then be moving forward.
1: If you think about it actually, what we've had in 38 years is passive death, waiting around as God takes away the people who it's not their time. The next stage is these younger this younger generation who've grown up knowing that their role is to join an army and conquer a land. And in some ways the parsha says sometimes death is passive and sometimes death is Active, And there are going to be all sorts of different ways that we encounter kind of the end of life in its time, earlier than its time. Um, and the spiritual awareness of that helps us mark that transition from this sort of passive stage to the more active stage that the Jews are stepping into now. And as we move forward, we see sort of every stage them doing one more thing on their own, one more thing actively all the way until they get to the land of Israel, where they fully take command of the land, take command of their own food production, their own water procurement, all of the things that they had miraculously in the desert um, were preparing them to get into the land of Israel and be ready to do that on their own.
0: You know, Rachel, throughout this conversation, I've been debating if I want to say the following, but I think I will. I think that there's very relevant import for everything we've said about this week's Parsha, not only in people's emotional approach to loss of life, which, as you've said in different ways, like it meets us, it meets us in all different ways in our life. It could be shocking, it could not be shocking, could not be shocking and still have a tremendous emotional impact and, and be something that people that we have a hard time moving on from and how to, how to sort of carry it with us. That it doesn't carry us. But I was recently listening to several episodes, some of them by Rabbi Shlomo Brody, who we've had on the podcast. Uh, and he's now the head of E-Mathai, which Tai, which was in the past known as uh, Hodes, the Halachic Organ Donor Society. And I, I guess I just want to say to our listeners that I think that even today there are way you know we live in a world where talk about in the ancient world, they worshiped you know their dead ancestors, and death was a very, very, very prevalent part of life, so the one of the blessings of modern life is that at least we can function for a certain amount of time in our life and not feel that death is is a is a a part of it, uh, and that's a blessing. But it also means that we have sort of created a society that is very scared of death. And there's been a real encouragement in the Orthodox community, I've heard it from a number of different directions, to 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 actively think about how to prepare for these things, not because it's happening now, or please God, in the next 10 years, or 30 years, we don't know, but there are conversations that can be had, and specifically, you know, where Brody was speaking about civilly in terms of, of organ donation, which also received some more press for very sad reasons here in Israel a few weeks ago. But I think that this idea of looking at Aaron and saying, there's something kind of exquisite about what happened there, about the preparation, about the preparation before, about the people's ability to say, you know, and again, not just to say it was it was a ritual done then, but there are thirty days of mourning and to have a, a ritual in place that leaves that creates space for people to mourn and to, to bring that to have that in their life and to then put it somewhere healthily afterward is something that's not any less relevant today. So I guess I wanted to put that out there. Maybe we'll put links to some of those episodes in the show notes. But but either way, you could check it out. I believe it was an episode in the Orthodox Conundrum. That was one of them, and, and there were others as well. But But preparing well for the next stage of life or or the stage of death is something that is available to all of us. There's ethical wills, there's there's all these different concepts that people speak about today that I think are are really powerful and that if we think about them well before they're relevant, they also can feel less threatening once we get over the initial hurdle of having those conversations.
1: And of course, they inspire us to live better and to live more fully and to think about what we can do in our lifetime to make our, both our lifetimes meaningful and help people you know, as they reach the end of their lives for whatever reason that is. I think I got my, um, I got my official organ donor card a couple of weeks ago. It came oh, in the wow. mail. Um, okay. It's very easy. You just fill something out. Yeah. Now it lives in my wallet. I don't know if you need to literally carry it around with you, but I will say it, it makes me feel something every time I open my wallet and I see that card in there knowing that in the event of the worst something good might happen. But in the meantime, I'm carrying around a body that God gifted me with, and I have a responsibility to do something with it on a day-to-day basis. I think preparing for death makes you appreciate life in a profound way. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, that's something that Judaism really values, right? Putting life above all means being aware of death, and those two things are two sides of the same coin. Rachel, thank you
0: for this conversation. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.